You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse. All right. Well, we are excited for our guest today. Uh, On Inverse, we have Chris E. Green. He is a professor of public theology at Southeastern University. He's teaching pastor at Sanctuary Church and director for St. Anthony Institute of Theology and Philosophy. He's the author and editor of a number of books, including most recently, Surprised by God, also The End, the End is Music, and the second edition of Sanctifying Interpretation. His current research focuses on the doctrine of God, theology and the arts, the problem of evil, and the history of race and racism in the Pentecostal tradition. He and his wife, Julie, live in Tulsa with their three kids, Zoe, Clive, and Emery. And so, Chris, welcome to Inverse Podcast. Thank you, Drew. It's an honor, man. I'm excited about it. Well, Chris, we're excited to have you on. And I think um, uh, in this Nonviolent Atonement series that we've been doing, you're the first person to wear the Pentecostal hat officially. And <laughs> we're really looking forward to um, hearing uh, uh, we're asking those who are joining us uh, live for the recording of this conversation. And so many of us have um, a Pentecostal background or influence uh, or have passed it in those circles. Um, the place where we usually start, the, the first question is, um, when do you first remember the gospel um, and or atonement being explained to you? In those circles where you grew up, um, uh, were those things one and the same? Yeah, I think they were, although... This is a great question to think about because I, I grew up in central U.S., so Oklahoma, for those who know the U.S., and in the center of Oklahoma. So the, the town where my parents worked, we lived outside of town, but the town where my parents worked claimed to be the heart of Oklahoma and the heart of America. That was its claim to fame. And... I attended a little, I mean, 70, 80 people attending a little Pentecostal church that was independent and holiness and mm. unbelievably intense spirituality. And one of the things that is a marvel to me now, of course, when I was living it, I had no awareness of it, but is a marvel to me now that is that they never really came away from the practice of praying and worship and preaching to talk about what they were doing. So like in technical terms, there was never any second level discourse. They just prayed and preached and sang and offered testimony and prayer requests. And nobody ever stopped to think, maybe we should explain what this means and how it works. I mean, in in part because there were never any outsiders who were present. So it was, there was always this assumption that everyone knew what it meant, what we were doing and how it worked. So you never had to explain anything to anybody. And so I, I say all that to say, I never heard any teaching about atonement. I never heard any explanation of it. I heard a lot of songs and sermons about the death of Jesus. In fact, I, I sometimes joke with my students that really the only things we ever talked about were the blood of Jesus and the fires of hell. <laughs> like, like that was really all we ever talked about. Right. And, and what, how one saved you from the other or kept you from the other. And, but it was all first level discourse. It was all kind of metaphor piled on top of metaphor, piled on top of metaphor. And there was never any kind of abstraction from that to explain what this means. I say never, like it it hasn't stayed with me, right? So I, I remember so many songs about the blood and sermons about the blood, 
Annabelle Hill, but, but no real theorizing about how it worked or why it worked. Now, when I, when I started my PhD studies on the Lord's Supper in the Pentecostal tradition, mm-hmm. I started reading Walter Hollenweger, who was the first one to do a PhD on Pentecostal studies. And he identified the spirituality I had grown up with as blood and wound mysticism. And I think that is exactly what it was. Of course, we didn't have language for that. And we could not have and wouldn't have wanted to abstract a way to describe it in that way. But I think that's what it was. It was blood and wound mysticism. And in that way was, at least in terms of the way we use the metaphors, very medieval. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's one of the reasons that like Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ was so powerful for us, because that's the way we had already been thinking anyway. Like the sermons right. were about the agony of Jesus suffering. So preachers would take you to the garden right, with Jesus sweating drops of blood and then kind of walk you through all of those hours leading up to his death. And the emphasis was very much on the physical suffering of Jesus, the, the torment into which he entered. And then that was a leverage to keep you from the torments of hell. Right. And so that there was a way in which as I mean, I'm saying it flippantly, but really like the blood of Jesus and the fires of hell, I mean, those were the dominant metaphors Hmm. and one is what saved you from the other. Wow. Wow. So when you think about, you know, some of those memories in both in terms of how you experienced it without the explanation and then also looking back, I'm curious about how you would say, um, the gospel and and particularly uh, Jesus dying and the atonements, like how was God being depicted at that point? Would you say God was being described and depicted in a violent and retributive way, in a nonviolent and restorative way? And also after you think about that in terms of God also, like what is that also, how, what did it mean for just everyday discipleship as well? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I think that the metaphors were too much for us, right? It, one way of coming at this is, I think most of our preaching came out of the Old Testament and Hebrews. We didn't really preach Paul. We didn't really preach the Gospels. We preached Old Testament stories and Hebrews. And I think in part that was because the metaphors carried a weight we didn't fully understand, right? So I think if you had pressed any of the preachers I grew up with, you know, explain to me why this happened, what what it means, how it worked, I think that would have been a disaster, right? And I think it would have very quickly reduced down to the worst kind of retributive justice. And I think you can see that with the way they talked about hell, right? The God who who sends you to hell. But I think that the metaphors in which they worked were were richer than that. Right? Yeah, they, yeah. Those metaphors yielded more than anyone intended or could grasp at the time. But I, I mean, maybe I'm being unfair, but I think if you push them to explain, if they had had to teach how atonement works, then, yeah, I, I do think it would have been it would have reduced down to terror of the God who punishes us for our sins and punishes us eternally. And there was some assumption that jesus suffered like the depths of hell on the cross and if we stayed tied to him we could avoid those sufferings but if we did not then we would not 
So I, I think I think that was the underlying teaching, but I, I just want to reiterate that I think the metaphors, because so many of them were drawn straight from scripture, right. they, they carried more wisdom than we had knowledge of. Mm. Yeah, Chris, that's fascinating. And certainly in terms of um, uh, keeping a kid engaged, there, there's enough terror there to <laughs> you know, you know, um, uh, fill an uh, imaginative child's uh, psyche with, with things to keep one occupied. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm also aware that while that might keep you engaged, it also might seriously um, traumatise <laughs> a child. Um, I'm interested, like, how, given how powerful those, um, that imagery kind of was um, in your psyche as a child, now as a Pentecostal theologian, um, how do you articulate uh, how Jesus saves? And um, do you still sing this power in the blood? And if so, what do you mean when you sing it? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, talk to us a little bit about um, where these flames and this blood feature in your theology now as a Pentecostal um, uh, theologian in the, what, 2021? Yeah. Yeah, so no, no doubt it was traumatic. I mean, I, I don't, I think my therapist and spiritual director and pastor and my wife and kids would tell you, right, that there's a way in which all that left a mark on me. But it was also, there was something about the, the poetry of it, the, yeah. the glory of it, that made it so that even though I was estranged for the church for a while, and I certainly rejected whatever teaching was on offer, I always felt God near, right? So like, it, there was something mystical about it for, for me. And I, I don't know kind of how all that hangs together exactly, but I do think that there was, if anyone's interested, if you go on YouTube and search for Claude Ely sermon, I think that's what will take you there. I looked earlier just to make sure you will hear Claude Ely is the one, uh, is a, one of the holiness preachers from my tribe who's probably the most famous one because he wrote the song um, Ain't No Grave Gonna Hold My Body Down, which is mm -hmm. a famous, famous song been performed by Johnny Cash and others. And he wrote, I mean, that, those are the preachers I grew up with. He is one of the preachers that I grew up with. And if you listen for just a while to any one of his sermons, like the emotional register is just it, on its own terms, forget the theology, just the emotional yeah. register itself is so intense that it, it's unbearable. You can't, you can't remain at that intensity long. Hmm. And there's a whole fascinating side of this discussion and the difference between, I think, white Pentecostal and black Pentecostal circles hmm. in that I think black Pentecostal spirituality could go to those depths, but it had more of a range of emotion, right? So there could be deep joy and hmm. laughter and dancing and something even playful about it, as well as deep groaning and intercession. But I think in poor white Pentecostal circles where I grew up, we had very little of the joy in dancing. At least we weren't as comfortable with it right, as we were with the terror and the agony of, of hell. And I think, and of the cross. And I can remember as a kid, you know, having intense prayer services where I was trying to get God to help me feel as much as I should be feeling about him dying, right? And trying to make myself imagine 
how grotesque the cross actually was. I mean, this is before Mel Gibson, long before Mel Gibson, trying to imagine what that was like to get myself to that kind of level of intensity. Right. So there, there was a lot of that, right. That I think was traumatic. And yet there was also something more to it, right. There was something redemptive, I think about it. Um, in fact, just one more point on, on the history, and then I'll try to answer the question you actually asked. I, I think if, if you also, if you go on YouTube and you search for songs about the blood, like power of the blood that you mentioned, Jared, or the blood has never failed me or the blood. I know the blood can bring me through these songs like these are, are songs that are rooted in that spirituality. And there is something joyful about them. But yeah, the blood will never lose its power is another example. Absolutely. And one of the, and there's, there's a way in which those songs, even though you're singing about the torturous death of Jesus, there is a kind of sense of joy that comes in singing them that I don't fully, I don't fully understand. And I, I don't know if that there was something dissociative about it, right? A way of kind of abstracting away from the terror, or if in fact there was something holy about it or both, right? It, it's a very strange tradition. And I think, you know, I don't want to exaggerate the difference between white and black Pentecostalisms, but I do think there were differences there that need to be need to be owned and discerned. All that. Chris, so before, I'm sorry. Yeah. no, no, that's um, before you get to um, the question of how you would now articulate Jesus. So yeah. since you brought up um, these two variant expressions um, of Pentecostalism in the U.S. and how race. Um, kind of shapes that I'm aware that uh, uh, you're from Oklahoma and yeah. um, you, you're now in Tulsa. That's exactly um, right. And uh, the history of Tulsa um, has come to light for a lot of people just in the last few years in terms of Absolutely. Uh, 1921 and the race massacre and the destruction of half the town and half the story is yet to be told. I, I was wondering, would you reflect a little on the shape of those two different Pentecostalisms and the, the real terror and um, uh, the other blood in the context of sisters and brothers, um, siblings in Christ who um, were, were literally killed in these same settings where people are singing sometimes the same songs very differently. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's astonishingly complex, right? I mean, the history of it, you look one aspect that, I think has to be named in this context is the way in which blood language at the time was tied to racial purity. So there were a lot of people who were talking about having the blood of Jesus means being whiter than snow means being racially pure. I mean, Charles Parham was a major early figure. I mean, that's, he's explicitly teaching that, right. And he's, and he's far from alone. So you've got kind of the blood of Jesus. You've got the blood purity dimension of this. I just wrote a piece on power and purity. So you mentioned like power in the blood, mm -hmm. like that idea was tied together, was used to tie together notions of power and purity. So the theologically, the way it was framed in the Wesleyan tradition is that we, we are sanctified and the sanctified life is a potent life, that the, the sanctified life is a life of miraculous power. And of course that's rooted in at least loosely rooted in Christian notions of the saints as miracle workers, right? mm. as, as people of victory. So there's that 
that dimension. But when you racialize it, the blood purity is tied to power, political power, economic power, as well as spiritual power in ways that are, you know, kind of astonishingly, or they're horrifying, right? And, and the move from that to physical violence against your neighbors is, is not, it's not far removed. But of course, a lot of those early Pentecostals are pacifists, right. even though they're also by, by and large racist. Although, of course, there are some white Pentecostals who are pressing hard for racial integration in worship and in preaching and so on. So it's, it's a very much a mixed legacy. You know, the, the whole, the image of Israel coming out as a mixed multitude from Egypt. I mean, that's very much what American Pentecostalism was. But, you know, my own research, it's, there, there certainly are like astound, astounding moments of, of intercession and solidarity around some of those early Pentecostal leaders, but then there are a whole lot of you know, sickening stories too, for sure. And, and, and of course, the legacy is one of racial division, right? So in the earth, what I'm, what I'm talking about here really is the first 10 or 15 years of the Pentecostal movement in, in the States. So early 1900s, up to World War II, say, there's a lot of ferment and unbelievable diversity. But by the time you get to the 40s and 50s in the run up to the civil rights movement, most of that has hardened into separate camps. It's, it's fascinating um, for me, Drew, because in, in Australian Pentecostalism, there's a way of telling the story about, um, you know, one-eyed um, Willie Seymour, William Seymour with, yeah. with his head um, uh, in that upturned apple cart, um, uh, praying and, and seeing what was happening in Los Angeles where, um, you know, the mixing of the races is what they're accused of in the newspapers and uh, Pentecostalism. Uh, overturned these um, patriarchal and uh, white supremacist realities in America. Um, I hear what you're saying, Chris, is that, um, uh, yeah, in part, it was a minority report and um, racist white men worked really hard to shut that down in other places outside of settings that were predominantly black settings. Is that true to say? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that piece I just mentioned on purity and power there are two sections, the majority report and the minority report. Mm. And there were, of course, white men and women, more white women than white men, but there were both white men and white women in that minority report for sure. But they were the minority and they did not win out. I mean, their, their view did not come to hold for sure in any kind of weight. And, and I, I will say too, back to the blood language, that was sometimes used the other way, right? So sometimes it could be used as an appeal to keeping the blood pure. There's one particularly horrifying example of that from a, a, a woman who was a British evangelist and a Pentecostal comes to the States and is preaching. And she says explicitly that Jesus will not marry below his kind, mm. that he has to marry someone who's equally pure. And her rationale for that is, because whites would never marry anyone of color, right? And so the, the kind of colonialist racist imagination becomes the economy in which Jesus' sacrifice makes sense, right? And so that that's, there's more of that than of the other, but there are sermons that work exactly the opposite way in which they will say, the blood of Jesus washes us clean of all of those racial distinctions. And in Jesus, we have a new DNA. 
we are in Christ and we're not anything else. We don't have a national identity. Now that has its own trouble because mm -hmm. that can actually end up, forgive the term, it can end up kind of whitewashing all ethnic difference, all sexual difference, all cultural difference in a way that's also not helpful, right? Right. But there, there was counter pressure there. And it, it's, and even what I'm saying now, I mean, it's still so much more complex than, than I think anybody has been able to fully catalog. What, whatever you, and part of it is because there's such a global kind of upsurge of spirit experience mm -hmm. that you've got people from every walk of life and every possible background who are sharing the same institutional spaces, right? So they're writing to the same magazines, they're preaching in the same services, and it creates this kind of astounding kind of ferment that by the time the institutions start to settle, it gets pressed away, unsurprisingly. Yeah. We're far from atonement. Hopefully this is okay. No, we, we oh, can always depart and circle back. <laughs> yeah, this this is know. fascinating. Yeah. Um, Drew, yeah. Drew and I have been talking a, a lot um, about like Anselm and the, the reality of um, feudal overlords' honor and how um, that worldview at the time shaped an articulation of the gospel. And what I've heard you just do um, in, you know, early 20th century um, USA is actually articulate how um, uh white supremacy is just the air people breathe and the same thing was happening in terms of their articulation of theology in that setting that it became how they understood those metaphors um chris the the initial um question that that provides so much uh helpful kind of um uh setting for is how would you now articulate jesus saves yeah, I mean, I, in, in a sentence, I would say, in Jesus, God sets all wrongs right hmm. and brings all creation in, not only into its full flourishing, but into something beyond that, into goodness uh, of God. So something like, you know, he not only heals every sickness and rectifies every broken relationship, but but truly undoes all wrongs. You know, there's that line in Lord of the Rings where, you know, they, they've, they've won the victory. It's before the scouring. They wake up in, you know, in an elven bed and Sam and Frodo are united, reunited. And he asks, are all sad things going to come untrue? Hmm. I think the answer is absolutely. All sad things are going to come untrue. And that's not all, right? There are good things that are going to come there's through. More. That are, that are, there's more, exactly. There's infinitely more, right? That, that there is always more to the goodness of God than simply the righting of our wrongs. But there's nothing less than that. And the righting of every wrong, right? Every wrong. So one way of getting at that is, you know, Jesus has this line about, you will give an account for every idle word. Right? So here we're not talking about murder or genocide or rape. We're just talking about, you know, idle words. But the God who numbers the hairs of our head and sees every sparrow that falls is no less concerned with an idle word than with, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima or the Holocaust. And that will be dealt with too. And, and so literally when I say all things, I mean all things. Right? 
will be will be set right. So atonement, and of, of course, this is where the English word comes from. But atonement is reconciliation, restoration. But more than that, it is transfiguration into a goodness we cannot now imagine. So one one more metaphor for this, you know, it's not just you know that the water of history and human experience has been poisoned and he's going to purify it. He will do that, but he will also turn water to wine, right? And that that's what atonement has to be. Can't can't be less than that. That's good. That's good. So, Chris, uh, some of what we like to do is not only to to dialogue with our guests around, you know, how they believe Jesus saves, but also to get a kind of a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, to like, yeah. how do we get there, right? Um, so I'm really curious about what are, um, you know, the pieces that make up your atonement puzzle, so to speak, or the sources, the influences, the experiences, the, what, what are you drawing on and drawing from that kind of has led you to um, this particular articulation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it'd be, it might be more interesting to ask someone else about my theology, because I think other people know our theology in ways we don't, right? So, right, right, um, right. But I mean, I'll, I'll give it a go. I mean, I, I think, you know, at a, at a very personal level, I mean, I think my theology is tied up with God putting me back together, right? I mean, God mm-hmm. healing me. Mm-hmm. And, and which, of course, is, a, is an ongoing work. And, and helping me to become a healer for others. So, I mean, I, I, I don't think I can, I can't describe this in, in purely theological terms, right? I mean, it wasn't just about books I read. Um, I do think. Now that's a good Pentecostal answer, Chris. <laughs> well, lots of pe- lots of Pentecostals don't want to count me, but you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me not to talk in those ways. Um, I, I do think that, the regular coming to the table. I think Eucharistic practice mm-hmm. was the moment in which it kind of, I mean, I'm sure the root was growing under the ground before I knew it, but I think that's when I knew it was a shoot is that when I was moving to, as a pastor, moving to weekly Eucharistic practice and then started to write about communion in my own tradition and communion in the church's broader tradition. I think that was it. I think that's when I started to to see what was right and good about the metaphors of my youth and how that those metaphors had actually sustained me in the midst of the toxicity and, and trauma. And that Christ is the one who holds all things together, right? That that these and, and this this is one of the marks. Frances Young in her book on God's presence, she has one of her chapters is on atonement theories, and she makes the argument that in in the ancient church in what she calls early christianity there were no standalone atonement theories there there just were a kind of endless array of images drawn together text from here you know a name of god from here and and just kind of held in this kaleidoscopic or mosaic and and that i think is what i've come to uh, is is something like that i don't i don't really buy into a particular theory or another um, I think what I'm holding is more kaleidoscopic than that and more dynamic than that. And, and oddly enough, I think that's more like the Pentecostalism at its best that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I mean, I'm happy to 
go to some of those texts, but I, that's the big, the big picture. You know, I, I will say, let me add one example of this. So I think I became a theologian really in college. I think it was my freshman year. So this was 1994, I guess. And I, we were assigned George McDonald's Lilith, which for those of you who wow. don't know is a novel about hell and Lilith, the queen of hell. And when I was two or three chapters into that book, I knew what I was going to do with my life. And by the time I was done with that book, I think this conviction I have of the God who sets all things right was already set. I didn't have the language for it. I had no idea how to talk about it Mm. in any kind of sound theological way. Maybe I still don't. But I'm no more or no less convinced today than I was then of that. And that book is is what turned it for me i think yeah that's fascinating chris and to make explicit uh for people that um while mcdonald might not be um as well known uh um one of the people that he influenced um who constantly quoted him as uh, uh critical for um the theological convictions he reached was C.S. Lewis, which might be more known. And I guess you're talking um, explicitly around MacDonald and uh, a vision of, uh, well, if we could use the language of, of this series, um, of a nonviolent eschatology, of, of hell not being an eternal reality, that the love of God has the last word. Um, and it, it's fascinating for us to hear uh, that being one of the, the influences, building blocks for a, a Pentecostal theology that has the table at the centre and reflecting on eternity um, uh, in light of the table, uh, in light of your own personal experience. Um, uh, and, and this is maybe why uh, uh, your conversations with um, David Bentley Hart's All Shall Be Saved have been so meaningful for so many people. Uh, because here's a Pentecostal theologian agreeing with the Orthodox, which, I mean, given your holiness background, isn't that surprising? Uh, like That's in Wesley, right. you have the early church, uh, the, the ancient church um, uh, is is right there, um, even in terms of what you're articulating um, uh, in terms of purity and power, like that sense of um, yeah. a, a sanctification, um, which is, is practical. Would you spell some of that vision out that we can hear, but for, for those who might not be familiar with um, McDonald, your work on the table, uh, a Pentecostalism that um, uh, sees God's love having the last word, could, could you sketch some of that for us? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the so I, again, I want to go back to that distinction I made early on in that I think the spirituality that the churches I grew up in had inherited was was what I call the blood and wound mysticism, which was in touch with these images in scripture and from the Christian tradition that were far more potent than we realized, right? We, we did not, we could not have described what it was we were handling, right? Hmm. And that's what we shared with the Orthodox tradition, what we shared with the mystical tradition and didn't know that we shared, right? And one, one example of that is, as I've said, how central the text of Hebrews was. And so there's mm-hmm. a line in Hebrews that talks about our God is a consuming fire, yeah. which was a language I heard all my life growing up, which would then be tied back to the story of Moses at the burning bush or the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, like this notion of God is consuming fire. And as I told you, the, 
the blood of the cross and the, and the fires of hell, like those are the dominant metaphors. They're kind of always with you. Well, in that talk of God is consuming fire, they blend. Mm-hmm. God is the consuming fire. In fact, one of the reviews I did for, for David's book was God is heaven, God is hell, which is the way we were talking, but of course, never intended to talk that way, right? We, didn't, we would never have agreed to that at a second order of reflection, but that's what we were preaching, right? Mm. So when I read George MacDonald's Luth, which is the story about the fire of God burning until everything that is not human is burned away, right? God consumes everything that is not human. And then all that's left is the bush that's burning and is not consumed, right? So Paul's language of the, the fire of judgment in which wood, hay, and stubble are burned away and gold, right. silver, and precious stone are, are retained, then that's what we were pre- that's what our metaphors were saying in spite of what we intended to say with the metaphors. Mm-hmm. And I think as a kid and the spirit of God working in my heart as a kid, I caught what the metaphors said in spite of what people were trying to say. This is one of the things I think is so right about David Hart's statement. If you if you've ever heard him talk about it, and he talks, he's, he mentions it in the book as well. And that is, this is a place where the heart of the child knows a truth the adult forgets. The, wow. the sense of God's goodness, and that God would never eternally, consciously torment you know his his enemies. I don't know that that's always true, but I, I definitely think that was true for me. I think that is exactly what happened and was happening. And so that I was kind of being sustained by the holiness of this language of the God who is the fire. Mm. Even though, of course, at the level of explanation, no one would have been able to say that to me. So when I read McDonald, I think that's why I immediately recognized this is what I've been sensing, right? This is language for that. And then when I started reading Gregory of Nyssa, I realized this is the theology right. for the image that Greg, and of course, McDonald is ultimately drawing all of that straight that's right. from that tradition. So, and could be that's what, Wesley like too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Chris, this is why I think you're so incredibly helpful for so many Pentecostals globally. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, <laughs> Pentecostalism, um, at its best, um, is an experience that leads to uh, a really thought out praxis and theology. Pentecostalism at its worst is, uh, highly naive emotionalism, which lends itself to playing chaplaincy to those in power. And uh, I'm not merely talking about Australia having its first Pentecostal um, uh, prime minister. I'm not merely talking about those who have played chaplain to Donald Trump in the US. I'm not talking about merely those who, um, you know, have played chaplain to Bolsonaro in Brazil. There is a a common thread that um, uh, those who don't do the work that you've done and that your theology does, of rescuing those powerful, provocative um, psychological metaphors and um, uh, learning from um, uh, ancient Christianity a mysticism that transforms those things so they look like what we see revealed in the life of Jesus. Instead, they actually play into the hands. So they, um, they provide a, a primer of terror in people's psyches to back authoritarian power. And um, that's why I find it so incredible um, in your work. You've you've provided ways for um, uh, Pentecostalism um, to repent but lose nothing of the power. Um, w- one of the things that uh, we've been asking in this Nonviolent Atonement series is what texts provide um, uh, 
the most grief when seeking to articulate a nonviolent understanding of atonement. And I guess in this conversation, um, we're talking um, atonement can't be separated from eschatology. Um, and that's been fascinating. Sure. I think for the first time, Drew, that's come through so strong um, is that those two um, questions can't be uh, um, separated. But are there particular texts for you that provide um, a lot of grief um, when dealing with other Pentecostals um, who who do play into this? Um, I've had a transformative personal experience, um, but my understandings of power, my vision of the world to come, haven't been transformed in light of Jesus. And Jesus is just left as a mechanism for personal salvation um, and world domination instead of something where we enter into the consuming fires that actually transform us. Oh man. Yes. But I will say this is where Pentecostalism is. It's, it's so widespread. So this is the way there's a, there's an argument in Pentecostal scholarly circles about whether Pentecostalism is a noun or an adjective, right? Is it, is it a movement hmm. that stands on its own apart from say Lutheranism and Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism, or is it a way of practicing spirituality that is adaptive to the various traditions, Lutheran, Anglican, Roman Catholic. And of course, historically speaking, there are Pentecostal denominations, but I, I think in terms of the phenomenon of the Pentecostal movement, I think it's overwhelmingly more adjective than noun. It's mm -hmm. more a, a way it's a, it's a kind of openness to experience, a kind of expectation of the intervention of God. You know, Jamie Smith in his little book, Thinking in Tongues, talks about five aspects of what he at the time called a Pentecostal worldview. He later distanced himself from worldview language. But mm -hmm. the, the first and I think the most important one is this openness to the surprise of God. So I think if, if you look at, if you're trying to get some kind of description of what Pentecostalism is in, in that adjectival form. I think it is something like that, all centered around this notion of openness to the surprise of God. The problem is that can go wrong in endless ways, right? The power of it is that it's adaptive to every context. The problem is it will go wrong in every one of those contexts almost immediately. Right? <laughs> so it will, you can put it into, it doesn't matter, right? You mentioned Brazil, the States and Africa, I mean, anywhere in the world, it yeah. will catch almost immediately, but it will also go into all kinds of aberrant forms almost immediately, right? It doesn't, it's a kind of dynamic that doesn't have a lot of internal integrity, right? It, it, there's nothing that kind of holds it still. And that is the reason it grows so explosively, but it's also the reason that, you know, there, there's, you know, endless numbers of Pentecostals in the world who have almost nothing in common with each other, even though they're claiming the same name, mm -hmm. right? they, they, they identify as Pentecostals, but what do they actually share? I mean, I'm not sure what exactly. So that means that when I'm talking to Pentecostals around the world, the pushback I get comes from whatever the dominant powers are in their part of the world, right? So like in the, in, in Bible Belt America, if I'm talking to, other white men and women, they're not so much grappling with scripture as they're grappling with kind of their politics, right? The, the pushback is not, well, this Bible verse says X so much as, well, this is what it means to be an American or whatever, right? So, I mean, that, that's, that's part of what it's, it's, I guess, frustrating, but 
there's no way to prepare ahead of time, right? There's not a, there's not a list of texts that Pentecostals cling to because depending on what their context is, different texts come up for them, right? So some Pentecostals are very, very much fundamentalist evangelicals. And so penal substitutionary atonement is central for them, but that's no, by, in, by no means is that universal, mm -hmm. right? And, and it doesn't become, you know, a, a pushback from everybody. Um, a lot of it is just political or, you know, so as you know, I mean, this, at least in the States, Pentecostals are more likely than any other Christian group to affirm things like torture or capital punishment, right? And I don't think there's any kind of coherent reason, at least I don't understand what the coherent reason for that is, except to say that it, the adaptiveness of the spirituality and the intensity of that emotion mm can work without ever touching any part of your lived life. And I, I, I can't articulate wow. this well, so you'll have to help me, both of you, Drew and Jared. I'm, I've been struggling to articulate this for at least a year. I think that Pentecostal spirituality, openness of your spirit to the spirit of God, if that's oriented to Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, then it can be transformative. But if you have that kind of openness of spirit to surprise, but it's not oriented to Jesus and the teaching of the teachings of Jesus, then you're just opening yourself up to every possible spirit. And what you end up with, mm. I think, is you end up in an alternative reality. You end up in a kind of dissociative emotional state that has nothing to do with the way you vote or the way you treat your family or the way you tip the waiter or the way you work your job, it's, it's literally another dimension of reality. And when it goes wrong, Pentecostal spirituality becomes entertainment in that way, right? It's, it's, a, and it's a kind of escape from life, but it has no purchase on transforming your life, changing the way that you treat your coworkers or your children or the way that you think about immigration or whatever the issues are at hand. And the thing is, in terms of if, if what you want is the feeling of transcendence, it's just as e easy to have it in that dissociative state as it is in the mystical one. Wow. Yeah. That's... So I, those are not perfect words, but I think you're feeling what I'm after here, right? That there's a, there's a kind of dissociative model and then I think a, a truly mystical one. And from the outside looking in at any particular church service, they might look identical. It might sound the same, but the difference ultimately, I think, is orientation to Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And I keep saying the teachings of Jesus, because if you don't do that, then Jesus just gets abstracted away, too. Right. Mm -hmm. right. right. Like he just becomes, right. you know, the white Jesus that Drew writes about. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's good. I mean, no, no, I'm always hesitant to speak into other people's traditions, though I feel like the black church I grew, grew up in, though it wasn't Pentecostal, in some ways had that what we could call that other broader pentecostal spirit to it right yeah. Um, yeah 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 but um but but nonetheless even in that kind of more black baptist space there still is this possibility and leaning of some right there were always some who i think their spirituality um led them into like this personal just reinterpretation of life 
in such ways that were disassociative of what was actually going on and their own lived experiences and the sufferings of others and certainly structures, you know, and so it's just so that that temptation is a real live one, I think, that absolutely has to be grappled with. That's right, Drew. And I I think so there's a there's a I can't remember the author right now, but there's a book on the history of the Church of God in Christ, which is a black Pentecostal, the major black Pentecostal tradition. And one of those chapters is dedicated to this point that black Pentecostals of the Church of God in Christ historically are just almost just as likely to be kind of hands off on political issues Mm -hmm. as white Pentecostals are. Right. So it isn't it doesn't track perfectly here in terms of racial lines. And I, I do think there's a reason there's a, there's a built-in temptation, which is if you're open to the work of God, if that gets misconstrued, what that looks like is I'm not supposed to do anything. I'm waiting on God to do it. Right? Right. There's a right. sense in which when if that teaching gets twisted, instead of the action of God operative in your action, the action of God comes when you stand still and see the glory of the Lord. Right. And so there's the way of preaching this. And I, and I heard this so many times growing up. And, and you, you're just as likely, well, maybe not just as likely, but it is not unlikely that you will hear it in a black Pentecostal church too, that we don't get involved in revolution or political conflict because we are going to pray and leave room for God to act, right? right. And that's right. not just an American black-white issue. I mean, that historically Christians have struggled with this. Monastic and mystical Christians have always debated about you know, what place does intercessory prayer have in the way we bring about change in the world? And so I do think in, in that way, the spirituality, precisely because it is a spirituality of prayer, I mean, that's what it is, really. Not only that, but that's the heart of it. It can very easily become prayer instead of activism, right? Prayer instead of involvement in the affairs of the world. And so it, and especially, right, in my holiness background, like we were supposed to be separated from the world. And that, that meant distancing yourselves from using political means to getting a divine end and so on. Yeah. So you're, you're yeah. bringing up a really critical point, Drew. Really yeah, critical yeah. point. And, and it's, I mean, I can think, I mean, even in like Church of God in Christ, I can think of some churches that are very engaged, right? Mm-hmm. And others Absolutely. that like, are you know yep. so as as we would say so heavenly minded right there of no earthly good right earthly, as we would yes. say, and I think that um that it just shows the the there there are there is no rule of faith so to speak right that is guiding right. the tradition per se as a as a feature characteristic of of the tradition I think, um, and that which, was by design that was by design right. so a lot of early right. Pentecostals were anti creedal because they thought one they thought that we were at the end of history. And two, they thought that if we removed creedal, if we removed rules of faith and just went back to the simplicity of reading scripture and praying, we would find that God would bring our unity. Right? So there was, a, there was a real kind of childishness about that mm-hmm. um, and immaturity. And of course, that is proven wrong, right? D- deeply, deeply, deeply mistaken. It didn't but work. Right. It didn't work. But you can, you know, if... If you love these people, it's easy to see why they would have made that mistake. Right? Right. It's easy to right. see why, you know, in the conditions of, you know, world wars and the all of the upheaval that colonialism had wrought on the world, it's easy to see why they would think 
we don't want the way of the church. We traditionally, right? We need right. we need a renewal, a restoration of the Christianity of Acts. And so the way we're going to get that is stripping away doctrine, stripping away ordination practices, stripping away institutional structure, and and strip it back down to the simplest dynamics, and then God will do the rest. And that again, I'm sympathetic for for the reasoning, but it just right. it, it didn't work. And I'm fascinated by this dynamic that um, uh, those that call for quietism find themselves um, playing chaplaincy to those in power. Um, yes. uh, Tabitha in um, the chat has brought up that um, uh, other than the issue of abortion, which they all seem uh, very in engaged in, and there's this, uh, there's this thing that if an issue touches my life, well, uh, it's not political, um, but anything that's removed from me, such as um, the reality of um, uh, people seeking safety in our nations or um, uh, the, the reality of um, uh, people needing welfare and what that's like on the receipt, if there's no proximity to, to that at all and no empathy um, that accompanies the proximity, then the issues that get cared about become completely abstracted away as well. And so, Chris, I was thinking it's, it's almost like um, if your doctrine of the Holy Spirit is becomes anti-Trinitarian and Christology gets reduced to um, uh, sin recidivism, um, like, uh, deal, like how we deal yeah, with how we deal, sin yeah. management, as Willard put it, um, uh, then there's, no, there's not much use for Jesus other than um, a mechanism for how sins are forgiven. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us for who knows what other than a good time on Sunday or Wednesday night or um, <laughs> followed yeah. up by whatever other services are during the week. Like your whole point around um, if the, the life of Jesus, um, uh, the, the, the teachings of Jesus aren't embodied, how completely dangerous it is to welcome any power um, in our lives to do anything other than what we see revealed in Jesus. That's right. And I think, I think you've, you've put your finger on the nerve here in that I think if Pentecostal spirituality, and here I'm talking about Pentecostalism broadly, like not limiting myself to you know, classic Pentecostal denominations like the Church of God or Church of God in Christ, but just thinking broadly about that Pentecostal sensibility, you know, it, it's, it's, like I said, it's, a, it's quickly adaptive in part because it tells people God cares about what you're feeling right now. Like what you're going through, you know, if, if you're struggling with drugs and alcohol, God cares about that and he can deliver you. If you're, if you're living in an abusive situation, God sees that and he can deliver you. He can, we can drive the demons out of your husband and, you know, we'll, we'll send you home with prayer cloths and locate them around the house and he's going to fall under conviction and come to you. And I, I, I want to be careful here. And I'm trying to thread a needle in that I think that we can see, as you've pointed out, Jared, there are all kinds of ways in which the majority of people shaped by this tradition end up not being able to live wise, discerning lives mm -hmm. on the whole, and certainly not lives that look the way of Jesus. But I think if you love those people, you, it's easy to see how it so easily go wrong, right? Like, I, I, I don't want to kind of cover over any of that, because I think it is a, you know, it's, it's sickening, right, to think about. But it's my family, yeah. and it grieves me. Okay. And I think that part of part of what we 
as a movement have not been able to do is get people to care about God and their neighbor beyond what God and their neighbor mean for the transformation of their lives. And that's where the confluence of Pentecostal spirituality and say the American dream becomes mm -hmm. so the powers are just overwhelming, right? That Pentecostalism then becomes the way in which we're going to harness the power of God to get the life everybody wants anyway. And to, to use one particularly horrifying example of that, Charles Parham, whom I mentioned earlier, who was early Pentecostal preacher, he's the one who popularized this notion that speaking in tongues is the evidence of spirit baptism. Hmm. In the 1920s, he's all the way through his life, but the 1920s, he's open supporter of the KKK and claiming that, in fact, I have a poster of his, a revival poster that at the bottom has in huge letters, KKK, convincing, convicting, convincing, converting, mm. which was a kind of signal to everybody that this Pentecostal revival is up to the same things the KKK is up to. And he's saying openly that if we could just get those men, the KKK, baptized with the spirit, they would have divine power to accomplish their good ends. So, I mean, that's an extreme example, but it's, it's been, it's happened over and over and over again, in which God gets appropriated, but that has grown right alongside Pentecostal spirituality at, at its best, which is, I think, apocalyptic and mystical and is the death of all of those things. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I know fewer people, but I do know a lot of people who've lived that same spirituality and it's brought them to the end of themselves and opened them up to be people of, of deep intercession and holy activism and you know causing good trouble at every turn all over the world. So I don't think the spirituality itself is the problem. Right? I don't think that somehow if we could just get rid of whatever Pentecostalism is, all these troubles would go away because Christians of all stripes end up playing those roles right in, in relation to power but yeah that it, it, it does greet me yeah I should stop talking there no, no no that's good I think that leads uh well for us to the next part of our conversation because you mentioned I mean Christians uh, Pentecostals certainly have no hold on <laughs> on imperial theology on theologies <laughs> that dominate on theologies embedded and mangled with white supremacy and colonialism and patriarchy and you know, we could go on and on and on. So I'm curious, you know, obviously this is inverse um, and, and we, we do like to, you know, explore how do, we, how do we get into good trouble together? And so when you think about, you know, the role that theologies, Pentecostalism, but all different various theologies, the way that they bolster and support um, all these death dealing forces in the world, where do you start in challenging them? Where, where, where do you go? when you're trying to respond to what, what you see going on um, and how God is being represented and articulated in the public square? Well, some of that depends again on who I'm talking to, but really right. I, I would say three, there are three answers, although they're really all one answer. The first is back to Jesus. Like, what do you see in the life of Jesus? What do you see in the teachings of Jesus? Like kind of relentlessly pressing the point that he's the canon, right? He's mm -hmm. he's the measure of our lives. He's the beginning and the end of our lives, and so he must be the middle too. And, and so pressing that point, then pressing the lives of the saints, and not only the mm -hmm. saint, the saints of the ancient church, but 
Pentecostal saints, right? Because there are William Seymour, of course, Margaret Gaines, mm-hmm. the, you know, there, there are all kinds of examples of Pentecostal men and women who have modeled that the life of Jesus, the, the self-emptying, neighbor-glorifying love of God. And that, I think, is critical. to, to rem- and, in ter- and I don't mean this as some kind of rhetorical ploy. I just don't think you can critique a tradition well if you're not really ready to celebrate what's best about it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, what I want to say is for everyone who's playing chaplain to Bolsonaro or, or Trump or whomever else you want to name, I, I want to try to name someone who's not doing that, right? Who's, mm-hmm. Whose prayers, whose witness has troubled that, right? Who has called that into question and you know, point to examples of, I think, a kind of wisdom that does bear the mark of Jesus in the men and women of our own tradition, right? To say, you know, you, you don't have to leave this tradition and leave what you love about it in order to find the way of Jesus. Jesus has shown us in this language too, how to be faithful to our neighbors. Yeah. And, and so that, that's, and then the third thing is try to press as much scripture as possible. Most Pentecostals still have, at least in theory, a reverence for scripture. So if you can keep telling stories about people in our tradition, you can keep talking about Jesus, and then you can just show from Genesis to Revelation all the texts that press back against the way we're practicing, the way we're living. I mean, I think, it, again, not that it's somehow persuasive for everybody, but I think that's how I would have to do it. Hmm. Um, now, I, I say all that to say, I mean, I'm... I'm a bit of an outsider in my own circles, right? I mean, when I, one of my first really transforming experiences when I was seven or eight years old was at my bedtime prayer, finding myself suddenly singing a song to Mary. Now, this is not typical Pentecostal practice. And then, of course, like I told you already, like what was transformative for me was Pentecostal pastor with weekly Eucharist. So I don't think I would have been able to find what's right about my tradition if I hadn't been forced out by what's wrong and encountered people in other Christian traditions who gave me life. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't want this to, to sound sectarian in any way. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there's, there's not an ounce in me of everybody should be Pentecostal. Dear God, if you can avoid it, please avoid it. Right. Like there's, <laughs> there's, I'm in no way trying to suggest like you, you should convert. Right. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed by my tradition in some ways, in the way that you're embarrassed of your family, but they're my family. And I don't, I don't know how to say this other than God won't let me join up with a tradition that makes more sense philosophically. Those aren't the people I live with. So I, the people I live with may not want me, but they're stuck with me for now, at least. I really appreciate your overall answer. I was thinking, I was like, that sounds like half of uh, my approach to writing my books, right? <laughs> Jesus is my canon. Give yeah. some lived examples of people who've gone other ways, right? And immersed in the scriptures. And I think that um, that can be a really compelling way to engage folks, especially those that claim Christ, but nonetheless have mandal- uh, vandalized the image of Jesus, right? Um, that, Absolutely. That, that's the invitation. Yeah. So, so it turns out, 
like everybody else, Pentecostals need Jesus. <laughs> More than anybody else, I think. But yes. Well, Chris, this has been wonderful. Um, we want to open it up for um, Q&A for those who have joined us. Um, but for those who are, are listening on, um, uh, we'll wrap things up on the podcast. Now, I'm wondering, um, for some of us, this isn't abstract, even in the comments that are flowing through. Um, uh, Pentecostalism is like so many other forms of Christianity, only more so because of the emotionalism <laughs> that, yep. that um, it often um, welcomes. And uh, even in the chat, people have been talking about um, uh, particular uh, experiences and, and how damaging, but there, there is um, something so potent about the tradition. And uh, one of the things that we're so thankful about your work is how you're an example of somebody who has done the work of integrating and uh, taking back um, those powerful imagery that once traumatized and uh, uh, using it to, to heal. I'm wondering if, if you would, um, uh, close us out with prayer before we go to question time um, with those people listening in um, in mind who who are seeking to do that work of um, uh, healing what has previously harmed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what immediately comes to mind, and here's, here's my Pentecostal formation coming out, um, what hits me right in the gut when you say that is the brass serpent story. Hmm. That, you know, the snakes have come in, they're killing the people. What's the antidote? That same image lifted up on the cross, right? Take, take what has been used to harm you and let God transfigure it and elevate it in Jesus and it heals. So that, that's what I'm going to pray for all of you. Jesus, you are the healing serpent, the one who bears our image in a way that doesn't just reflect back to us all that's gone wrong in us, but bears our image back to us in a way that summons us to fullness and healing and wholeness and happiness, joy and peace and goodness, all that your life is. So God, for my brothers and sisters, for Jared and Drew and everyone else here whom I don't yet know, many of whom will, like me, have been traumatized I pray that you will be that healing, that if, if it was prayer or preaching or prophecy, promises of deliverance or healing, whatever words were used or whatever feelings were used against us to, to bring damage, God, be the image of that that liberates us, sets us free from whatever damage evil wrecked on us. But I pray that we will be open to you, not just open to any spirit, but open to the Holy Spirit. Like drawn to you, drawn to be you to our neighbor and to find you in our neighbor. God, to, to enter into trouble with you, right? to, to go, to die with you. God, I pray that we will all fall deeply, deeply in love with who you've shown yourself to be to us in the life of this man, Jesus. And I pray that your spirit will carry us into ways of living that look and sound and feel exactly like Jesus, because they are nothing less than Jesus living in us. And in, in that being carried along, set us free. Set us free from every fear, 
every intimidation, every lust or ambition that would keep us from being truthful people, make us wise so we can live this life as you've called us to live it. We pray this in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.